0: Good morning once again. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John chapter 14. John 14, if you're new with us, God bless you. Welcome. It's always good to see new faces. Just to let you know, we are working our way through the Gospel of John here at Calvary on Sunday morning. Find ourselves in John 14. Let's just read verse 19, where Jesus said, "A A little while longer in the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. Now once again, remember that Jesus is preparing his disciples for the difficult days ahead. The time when he would be going away and they couldn't go with him. He mentioned that in chapter 13, verse 33. And no doubt to the disciples' ears that night, his words sounded confusing and at times even cryptic. Read chapter 16, verse 16, you'll see what I mean. And yet we know what he was talking about. We know. When he said, a little while longer, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me, by this the Lord Jesus meant that not only had his public ministry to the world officially come to an end, but he would soon be crucified. In fact, just hours from that point, he would be crucified. And so in that regard, the world would see him no more. When Jesus died on Calvary's cross, the people of the world, especially the chief priests, scribes, Pharisees, those that hated Jesus, they would comfort themselves with the knowledge that Jesus the man was gone, dead and buried, and they wouldn't have to see him anymore. Of course, after he rose from the dead, he would only appear, he would only reveal himself to his disciples. Check out 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 to 8. Uh, but he would appear to his disciples, and they would go around preaching that Christ had risen from the dead. Because of it, the Jewish leaders, in conjunction with the Roman government, hunted down anyone who claimed that Jesus had risen from the dead, that they had seen the risen Christ, and uh, murdered them. Jesus said at the end of verse 19, Because I live, you will live also. This all-important statement by Jesus was not only an affirmation that he would be raised from the dead, but a promise that he would be the first fruits of a great harvest of souls who would rise from the grave never to die again. You can again read 1 Corinthians 15, uh, verses 12 to 23, because Paul picks up on that and runs with it. It's a great section. But as we said last week on Resurrection Sunday, when Jesus told his disciples, because I live, you will live also, he wasn't just speaking of eternal life in heaven someday, but a life of victory and power on earth right now. As we said last week, the resurrection was never intended by God to be one day in the calendar. It was intended by him to be a dynamic, everyday way of life. You can go online and listen to the last week's message because we really developed that. Now, verse 20 is a little confusing. Where Jesus said, at that day you will know that I am in the fa- I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Um, commentators are not in agreement when it comes to the day. Uh, Jesus is referring to when uh, that would prove to his disciples that he was in the Father, and that the disciples were in him, and he in them. Uh, what day is he talking about? Well, before we actually look at that, uh, <laughs> let's look at that statement. Okay, um, it's, it's confusing. This statement is a statement of koinonia. Koinonia, which is a Greek word that means oneness, oneness. Here in John fourteen verse twenty, guys, I'm not sure you realize this, but here in John twenty, excuse me, in John fourteen verse twenty, Jesus introduces one of the greatest truths in the Bible a truth that forms the foundation for much of Paul's writings and for the rest of the entire New Testament. The doctrine of the believer, listen, being in Christ, in Christ. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you were taken by the Holy Spirit and placed in Christ. In other words, you were placed into the body of Christ. You didn't feel it. You saw the effects afterward, obviously. I know I did uh i didn't things weren't radically different all at once overnight but a lot of things began to change very quickly and that's what happens when you're born again uh, that's what happens when the holy spirit places you in the body of christ you're born again your life begins to tr- change dramatically it's transformed day by day by the holy spirit but that's what it means to be saved to be a member of his church, you don't join the church of Jesus Christ. You can join a the church, there's plenty of them out there, but you don't join the true church of Jesus Christ. You have to be born into it. And that's why receiving Christ into your heart is your Savior. But listen, the church is the body of Christ, Jesus Himself being the head of the body. In that regard, the church is a person, if you will. It is the person of Jesus Christ as His body. We are a living extension of Jesus Christ. You can't speak of the church apart from Jesus. They are one. As the body of Christ, it is our responsibility to manifest Christ to this world. When Jesus ascended back into heaven, when he died, uh, resurrected, 40 days later, he ascended back to his father. His ministry on earth didn't end. He continues it from heaven as the head of the body, directing his body, the church on earth, through the central nervous system of the Holy Spirit, you might say, using us to continue the work he began 2,000 years ago. You have to turn to these, you know them. John 14, 12, where he said to his disciples, most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will, he will do also. And greater work than needs will he do, because I go to my Father. So he's talking about a future time, after he goes to his Father, after he ascends back to the Father, where we will be doing great works, and even greater works than he did while he was on the earth, as we continue his ministry, right? Uh, Acts chapter 1, verse 1. Luke begins after writing volume 1 of a two-volume treatise, Volume 1 would be the gospel according to Luke. Uh, the second volume would be Acts, where he picks up where the Gospels, his gospel left off. He said in Acts 1, verse 1, the former account, that would be the gospel of Luke, I made O Theophilus. That's, many believe that was Luke's master. Luke was a slave. In that, those days, it was very common for wealthy people to have their own doctors, slaves who were doctors. So they own the doctors. Today they own us. But that times change, okay? <laughs> Um, But the former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach. So Jesus' life was only the beginning. The work continues through his body on earth, the church. Now, being a Christian, guys, is not simply being outwardly identified with Christ, but being a part of Christ. We really hit this big last Sunday, so... Check it out. But I'll give you a couple of scriptures. Galatians 3, uh, 27, uh, where uh, Paul said, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. The baptism he is talking about, as we said last week, is a dry baptism. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. Uh, you know, you're baptized into Christ, which means you're, you open your heart to him. The Spirit moves in and places you in. The, you're ba- baptized. The word means to, to immerse. You're immersed in the body of Christ. You become a member of his body. All right? It's a dry baptism. We take you down to water uh, and baptize you in water to symbolize that, uh, that you're a new creation in Christ. But uh, this idea of being you know, baptized into Christ, Second Corinthians five seventeen. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, uh, he, she is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Uh, just a very important point, and I know that you know this, but uh, we are not just identify with Christ, we are part of Christ now now i'm not please don't misunderstand I'm not talking about some metaphysical weird that we're now because he's God we're God, and no no, no, there are groups that teach that, okay but we are you know for a back of a letter, uh, for a lack of a better uh, illustration. We're like a, a cell in his body, if I can put it that way, okay? I mean, our bodies are made up of cells. They're living little organisms. Um, but they're part of us. They, they make up our body, okay? And, um, but our being in Christ, guys, is one of the deepest mysteries of the Christian faith. One that we will not fully understand until we meet him face to face. It's such an incredible truth that Peter tells us in his first epistle that angels desire to look into it. Or in other words, God's angels desire to understand how God could live in man. More specifically, how the Lord Jesus Christ through the indwelling Holy Spirit could inhabit a fallen yet redeemed person. Angels stand in God's presence. They see his glory every day. They have never been able to comprehend how God could dwell in us, in the new covenant, the church. Now, this is how we can be in Jesus, members of his body, but also how that Jesus could be in us. Sounds contradictory, kind of right? Uh, I'm in you, you're in me. What are you talking about, Lord? Well, you know, you're in me because when you get saved, you're a member of my body. I'm in you through the indwelling Holy Spirit. Makes perfect sense to God, okay? Uh, it just speaks of oneness, koinonia, right? But this doctrine, guys, this teaching, doctrine means teaching. This teaching is unique to the Christian faith. No one ever says that they're in Buddha or that they're in Mohammed, or in Confucius. Only Christians can say that we are in Christ. Now in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul the Apostle elaborates on this concept of the church being in Christ, in other words, members of his body, by describing the church, listen, as an organism, as an organism. The church is not an organization. It is an organism. The big difference between an organism and an organization is that one has life and the other does not. I think one pastor put it well when he said, and I quote, quote, a corpse is organized. It has all of the limbs in the right place. The bone structure is intact. All the organs are in the right spot and connected to the right things. Everything is there, but it's not alive. At this point, it's an organization, but has ceased being an organism. The dictionary defines an organization as a structured system, but it defines an organism as a living system. The church is not a dead organization. It is a living organism. It's living because Jesus, who is alive, is its head, and because the very breath of God, the Holy Spirit, fills its members. End quote. Guys, we are all living members of the body of Christ, knit together by the Holy Spirit, and given various gifts and ministries so that the church, the body of Christ, might live, grow, and serve the Lord in this present age. Uh, I'll have you turn to the book of Ephesians, chapter 4. I I just want to land on this for a little while longer and then we'll move on, but it's such an important doctrine, such an important concept, how that we are in Christ. And there's a lot that goes with that. We talked about some of it last week on Resurrection Sunday. But first of all, the thing that's communicated when you hear that we are all members of Christ's body. Well, you know, we talk about the cells in a human body or the organs of a human body. Everything has to work together in unity if that body is going to be healthy and productive and so on, right? This is a very important concept to those who are believers in Christ. I'll have you first look at Ephesians 4, verse 1, where Paul emphasizes the unity in the body of Christ. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Well, didn't Jesus pray for this before he went to the cross, just hours away from the cross in John 17? Uh, one of the last things he prayed for to his father was, Father, I pray that my disciples would be one with each other, even as you and I are one, that they would also be one. That was his last prayer for his church before the cross and good heavens have we have we not yielded to that prayer request there's so much fighting and and bickering and backbiting in the body of Christ it's pathetic shame on us right then I'll have you skip ahead to verse 11 where Paul hits on this whole idea of ministry and in uni- in, in, yes, unity in the ministry. Uh, yeah, we're one body, but there's a purpose, right? A healthy body uh, has work to do, has different things that it accomplishes, right? Well, if we're a healthy body, how do we be a healthy body in Christ? Be unified. Uh, stop being self-willed. Stop, you know, uh, fighting for the top and fighting for dominance and look at me and I... I'm doing this ministry, and you're not doing anything for God, and this kind of thing, right? Once we have the unity, though, in the body, then we express that unity in the world through ministry. Verse 11, I'll read it to you the NLT 2nd edition, where Paul said, Now these are the gifts Christ gave to the church, the apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastors and teachers. Their responsibility is to, to equip God's people to do the work and build up the church, the body of Christ. growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of of his body, the church. He makes the whole body fit together perfectly. As each part does its own special work, it helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. Bottom line is, once again, to use a human body as an example of this, if a human body, if the brain is not able to communicate to the various parts of the body, so that arms move and legs move and certain things work uh, like they should. If the head can't control the body, the body is paralyzed, it's handicapped. and it has to be taken care of, it can't do work, it can't, you know, be productive. If a church is full of infighting and disunity and disharmony and bickering and complaining and murmuring and, and, and et cetera, well how was that body how was that church going to accomplish the work of god there are so many churches today that are so paralyzed um, with animosity where people vehemently dislike or even hate the leadership the leadership really has no love for the the church and there's this fighting going on say it's terrible of course it's terrible not what God wanted and no wonder of the church is not accomplishing the work God the Lord Jesus gave us to do. Uh, guys, uh, the idea here is unity. unity. that we all have different things to do. the Lord Jesus through His Spirit directs us to do different ministries has given us different gifts to do those ministries. but the key is we all have to work together in unity if the work is going to get done, right? The important element of any organism is unity. But unity doesn't mean uniformity. Unity doesn't mean uniformity. Turn to 1 Corinthians 12. I mean, back in John 14, 20, you say, how do we get over here? He introduced one of the greatest truths, one of the greatest New Testament doctrines in the Bible. How that, as his people, we are in Christ. And there's a lot that goes along with that. So we're just touching on it a little bit. Because Paul touches on it. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12. Paul says, for as the body, now he's talking about the physical body, is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body, being many, are one body. Yeah, it's made up of a lot of different parts internal parts outer parts uh, but it's still the same body so also is Christ and the idea is so also is Christ's body guys the strength of the body of Christ lies in its diversity I mean we we, we are all different with different kinds of ministries but we are working together for a common purpose. If anything's going to get accomplished, can you imagine on a uh, automobile assembly line, say Ford, right? And um, they're making you're on the production line that makes the F-150s. Good truck, right? Some of you are Ford guys. Some of you hate Fords. Okay, <laughs> I'm not here to sell you a Ford. I don't own a truck. Okay, I don't own a truck. Um, but you know how assembly lines work, right? Everybody's got they're all working together, but they all have different jobs to do. What if everyone said, I'm just gonna bolt on taillights? That's all I'm doing. Uh, trucks wouldn't get built, right? The strength of any organization, and more specifically, any organism, is that many parts, but they all have to work together in unity if anything's gonna get accomplished. Well, that, that's what Paul's talking about here. Uh, jump down to verse 15. If the foot should say, "Because I am not a hand, I am not of the body," is it therefore not of the body? If the ear should say, "Because I am not an eye, I am not of the body," is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing come from? If the whole were a he- were hearing, where would this you know where would smelling come from, or how would they, the body smell? But now God has set the members, each one of them, in the body just as he pleased. And if they were all one member, where would the body be? I mean, if we were all just a big nose, might smell, be able to smell good, but that would be about it, right? And we all, we all, you know, some of the, he says, some of the more important parts of the body you don't even see. Try to live without the liver, right? It's not going to work too well. Or other things that are hidden, that we don't adorn and dress up and put makeup on or whatever. But they're vital to the overall health of the There are some pe- I'm convinced, the greatest parts in the body of Christ are people you never heard of, who are not visible, who just every week pray for the church or they do something nobody else sees um yet god sees and they're vital to the overall health and function of that church but um verse 19 if they were all one member where would the body be but now indeed there there are many members yet one body verse 26 and if one member suffers all the members suffer with it or if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with He's about the body of Christ, right? I mean, if somebody does something um, you know, in the body of Christ and, and receives some accolade for something, the whole body is blessed. Everyone, the whole, the whole Christian church is benefited, right? Right. Um, If one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. One member is honored. All the members rejoice with it. Verse 27. Now you are the body of Christ and members individually. So again, the idea is unity, though, uh, based on diversity. And that's how things get done. All right. Getting back to what Jesus said in John 14. Once again, verse 20. At... The Greek is really in, in that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Now, commentators, as I said earlier, are not in agreement when it comes to the day that Jesus is referring to uh, that would prove to his disciples that he was in the Father, uh, and that the disciples were in him, were in Jesus, and he in them. Exactly What is he referring to? What day is he talking about? Well, some believe the Lord Jesus is referring to the day of his resurrection. The day of his resurrection. Um, While others believe the day the Lord has in mind is the day of Pentecost in Acts 2. When the Holy Spirit was poured out and the disciples were filled with the Spirit. Of course, guys, listen. The day of his resurrection was going to be an incredibly powerful and important day. We won't deny that. Okay? Okay? But I believe the day the Lord Jesus had in mind was the day of Pentecost, which would occur 50 days after his resurrection. I believe this because it fits into the context of what he had been saying to his disciples in that upper upper room up until this point. Verse 20. Remember, Jesus had told them he was going away and that they couldn't go with him. That caused fear to immediately fill the disciples' hearts. Prompting Jesus to say, backing up to verse 15. If you love me, keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper. Now we studied this in detail a few weeks ago. All right. That he may abide with, with you For I'm going away, but I'm going to pray the Father is going to send you another helper. The Holy Spirit, Spirit of Truth, verse 17. Whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him. For he... Dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you like. Uh, I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. Verse nineteen. A little while longer, the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live. You will live also in that day. In what day? Well, if you go back, he's talking about sending the Holy Spirit upon them. I won't leave you alone like orphans. I'll come to you, but I'll come to you in the person of the Holy Spirit. This was the promise he gave to them in that upper room that night because they were fearful he was going away. He was leaving them and they couldn't go with him. All disciples went with their master. They had lived with him for three and a half years, but now he's going away and he won't let us go with him. But don't worry, he said, I won't leave you alone like orphans. I know you're young in the faith like babes. I'm gonna send you back another caregiver another helper the spirit of truth in that day you will know that I am in my father and the father in me and you and you Excuse me in that day you will know that I am in my father and you and me and I in you guys as we have said in previous studies this promise the promise of the Holy Spirit being sent from the father was fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. Again, I won't have you turn to these. I'll just read them and you can write the references down. Uh, Luke 24, 49. This is after the Lord rose from the dead. He said, Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. So he is reminding them of the promise he gave them in the upper room, our John 14. Okay. He calls it the promise of my Father. Then you turn to Acts 1, verse 4, and uh, it says, uh, And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You have heard from me. Yes, the promise he made them in the upper room the, the night that we're studying. Of course, then Acts chapter 2 opens up with verse 1 when the day of pentecost had fully come it goes on to say they were filled with the holy spirit again i believe this is the day jesus was talking about and then after they were filled with the holy spirit uh, on the day of pentecost uh, peter preaches to the crowd a lot of people in town for the feast of pentecost he said uh, acts 233 therefore being exalted To the right hand of God. Talking about how Jesus ascended back to his father. And having received from the father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He poured out this which you now see and hear. What is this mighty rushing wind? Um, How can we as disciples of Christ all speak in other languages we've never learned? This is that which was spoken of by the prophet Joel. And the last days I will pour out of my spirit on all flesh says the Lord. You can read that in Acts 2. But this was the fulfillment of the promise Jesus gave them. We talked about this a, a couple weeks ago. Uh, this promise is what is called the baptism with the Holy Spirit. And it is the empowering for service. The empowering for service. Acts 1.8 uh, You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And then you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, under the uttermost parts of the world. So the Baptism with the Holy Spirit was the empowering for service. We studied this in detail in verses 15 through 18 of John 14. We called it the promise of the Holy Spirit, parts 1 and 2. You can go online and listen to it. And I would encourage you to do that because this is something they needed before they could uh, go out into all the world and fulfill the Great Commission, something we all need. But I believe this, guys, was the day that Jesus had in mind when he said to his disciples in verse 20, "In that day you will know that, you know, I am my Father, you and me, and I and you. Verse 21. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. Now guys, the Lord Jesus is going to be touching on various themes. Remember, this is his farewell address to his disciples before the cross. So he's touching on a lot of different things. He's already taught them. He's kind of, Bringing it all together and condensing it into one farewell message. Uh, a little hard to, almost, it's like um, I had a hard time giving this this message a title. There's so many incredible truths that the Lord weaves into these this passage. So bear with me. I know we're kind of jumping around from one thought to another. Uh, Jesus did that. We ought to know if he's touching on some of the main things. I mean, God forbid you're dying. You've got, like, Jacob on your deathbed, right? And you call around your bed all the people you love most in this world, your spouse, your children, your grandchildren. What are you going to talk about? The weather? God forbid the cubs (laughs) or the socks or whoever. No, you're going to talk about what is most important to you. You're going to want to pass along to to your children, grandchildren, your spouse, what you have, over the course of your life, come to realize is the most important truths that you want to pass along to them. Well, Jesus was facing death in a few hours. And this was his way of gathering around himself, his disciples, his closest men, his, his family on earth, you might say, to pass along to them some of the most important truths that he had taught them over the course of three and a half years. That, go into this with that in your mind, okay? Okay. Now he's, he jumps on to something else. He says in verse 21, he, he who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. Here Jesus is using the idea that those who keep his commandments will do so as a way of demonstrating their love for him. And that this will be, listen, an indication or a fruit of them having exercised f- saving faith and being born again. I mean... Keeping Jesus' commandments um, doesn't make us saved. It's an evidence that we do know him, though, right? He said earlier, John 10, 27, My sheep hear my voice, I know them, salvation, and they follow me. Following the shepherd doesn't make you one of his sheep. You follow the shepherd because you are one of his sheep which you became one of his sheep by receiving him as your savior okay so jesus is using this as a litmus test for uh, the veracity of a person's faith was it just head knowledge or was it true saving faith from the heart how do we know my sheep hear my voice i know them they follow me they obey me they keep my commandments okay we see John, the author of this gospel, pick up this idea and expand it in his first epistle, chapter 2. Uh, he picks up John 14, 21, the words of Jesus, and uh, he uh, talks about it. Turn to 1 John 2. Uh, he talks about it in his epistle, uh, expanding on it, as John often did, because it's an incredible thing that needs to be driven home in the hearts of people who claim to be Christians. All right. 1 John 2, starting with verse 3. Now, John picks up on this idea of a litmus test. It says, now, by this we know that we know him. All right, how do I know him a Christian? And John says, by this we know we know him. That yeah, is, uh, saving knowledge, right? A oneness with christ how do we know we're christians okay john answers his own question if we keep his commandments now that doesn't make you a christian again it's just an evidence or a fruit that you are a christian before i got saved i wasn't the worst sinner in the world but i certainly was no saint i knew the commandments i grew up in church And I suppose I took them somewhat seriously, unless I wanted to break one, that it was always an exception. But now it's a different thing, right? As Christians, we we love the Lord. We want him to be what he has said. It's an evidence that we're saved, right? Verse 4, He who says, I know him, I'm a Christian, and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word truly, the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. Again, a term of salvation. He who says he abides in him ought himself also also to walk just as he walked. In other words, anyone who says he's a Christian ought to be following Jesus. We don't do it perfectly. Jesus was perfect, is perfect. We... Desire to obey him. We don't always do it. But that should be the pattern of our life. As opposed to those Jesus talked about in Matthew 7, who on the day of judgment come to Christ, stand before him and say, Lord, Lord, haven't we cast out demons and prophesied and done many good works in your name? And I will say to them, depart from me. I never do you, you who practice lawlessness. Not lawlessness with regard to the laws of man. Lawlessness with regard to the laws of God a lot of people who profess to be christians they talk the talk they don't walk the walk paul said it to a young pastor named titus they profess to know god but their lives tell another story their lives tell another story all right verse 21 again he who has my commandments and keeps them it is he who loves me and he who loves me will be loved by my father I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you can that you will be how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Now uh, John makes it a point to say that this Judas was not Iscariot. Judas Iscariot, as we have already said by this time, had left the upper room and had gone to the chief priests, scribes, Pharisees to finish carrying out his betrayal of Christ. He, he was gone. Before communion was ever entered into in the upper room, Judas was gone. Now, this is another Judas uh, called Judas here, but also called the son of James in Luke 6, verse 16. And he's called Thaddeus in Matthew chapter 10, verse 3. So he asks this question. He's confused. Understand that at this point, Jesus' disciples are still clinging to the belief. That even if he goes away for a little while, I'm going away, okay, fine, he'll be back soon. He's got to set the kingdom up. So yeah, if he's going away, fine, it'll be a little while. He'll come back shortly and set the kingdom up. This is what they were thinking. This is what they had in their hearts, that he was going to come back uh, quickly and and establish the kingdom of God in the earth. And so with that in mind, uh, you can understand why Judas is confused as to how Jesus could establish a worldwide earthly kingdom and yet only manifest himself to his disciples and not to the rest of the people of the world. You can get that, right? That's their thinking. Oh, and, cor- and by the way, after he rose from the dead, right before he was ready to ascend back to the Father, Acts 1, at this time, Lord, we establish the kingdom? So they're still thinking the kingdom. And, and the Lord said, no, not yet. Just, just do what I told you to do. It'll happen. All right? Um, Let's finish with, uh, with uh, verse 26. Back up to verse 22. So Judas, not as scary, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words. And so, you know, people say, I love the Lord. I love God. I love Jesus. Well, yeah, but... How you living? Look, none of us are perfect. But Jesus said, look, don't tell you love me if you're out there living in sin like crazy and violating every one of my commandments. And no, you don't love me. It's like the guy who says to his wife, I love you. You know I love you. I just have affairs on you all over the place. Well, any wife would say, you don't love me. Your actions don't show that you love me. If you love me, you'd be committed to me is the idea, right? Verse 24, He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while being present with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. Now, we'll finish with this Because there's so much. I just had to break it off somewhere. But um, this is also a very, very important teaching. Right? Anything Jesus taught was important. Some are even more important than others, though. First of all, when Jesus said the Holy Spirit, whom the Father would send in my name. We have already studied that phrase. That means uh, that Jesus was saying that the Holy Spirit, when he comes, would perfectly represent me. Represent me in my absence. Okay? Wouldn't do anything that I haven't done. Wouldn't teach anything I haven't taught, right? Okay, they're the same God. The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send, will will teach. He was saying would teach his disciples all things. See it there. Um, the Holy Spirit, when he comes, will teach you. Speaking to his disciples, all things. What does what does that mean, though? I mean, every he's going to teach them everything there is to know. You know, history, art, uh, mechanical engineering. No, I mean, you know, he he was. He was talking specifically that that the Holy Spirit would teach them everything they would need to, to know for doing the work of the kingdom. Starting with giving them the rest of God's revelation that we call the New Testament from Acts through Revelation. I mean, you can't teach somebody something if you don't have something to teach them from, right? So, But we get a better understanding of what Jesus had in mind, guys, when he said this by looking ahead. when He kind of revisits this topic uh, a little later in the evening. Turn to chapter 16, John 16, where he seems to revisit this topic and kind of stress it once again. John 16, verse 12. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. They weren't mature enough yet to handle it. However, when he, the spirit of truth has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, yes, from the Father and the Son, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. Again, guys, the point at this point, the holy excuse me, at this point, the disciples were not spirit-filled yet. They wouldn't be spirit-filled until Acts chapter two on the day of Pentecost, right? When the spirit was poured out. So at this stage in their spiritual development, they're still very young, very immature. As I said earlier, they're like babes. I would I would expand it since they had walked with Jesus for three and a half years. I mean they were a little more advanced than just babies. Uh, I've kind of likened it to a K through eight spiritually speaking, okay? They're an elementary elementary school, spiritually speaking, right? That' was kind of the depth of their of their knowledge, okay? Now, of course, when the Holy Spirit would be poured out in the day of Pentecost and they would be all spirit-filled, uh, well, now they would be able to understand the deeper things of God. The Gospels were very simple. The Epistles were advanced course uh, in spiritual truth. All right? Revelation, wherever you want to put that book, okay? It, it's well, it's a whole different stratosphere. But um, there's coming a point when they would be able to comprehend the deeper things of God. Right now, the Lord's keeping it simple. There's a lot of things I want to tell you. You're not ready to receive it now yet. But when the Holy Spirit comes, he'll lead you into all truth. He'll tell you everything that I, I, I wanted to tell you. Expand your knowledge that you'll understand uh, these things and will equip you for the work I've called you to do. One of the things Jesus the Holy Spirit would reveal to them would be prophecy. Things to come. Do you know that 27% of the Bible is prophecy? 27% of the Bible is prophecy. God tells us in his word that by telling us things that come, future prophetic events, it confirms that he is God and the Bible is his word because no one knows what is coming in the future perfectly but God. Quickly, Deuteronomy 18. Turn over there real quick. I just want to show you this real quick. Deuteronomy 18. Let's start with verse 20. God is actually speaking to Moses, but all the children of Israel. He says, But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, How shall we know the word which the Lord has? has not spoken. I mean, how do we know he's not speaking, you know, he says he's speaking from you. How do we know if he's a false prophet? Verse 22, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not happen or come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken, the prophet has spoken it presumptuously, you shall not be afraid of him. And in those days put him to death. Okay? So if a guy claims to be a prophet of God and says one thing that doesn't come to pass, just one thing, they're a false prophet, take him out and stone him. Because God says, I'm God. I know the future. I'm not guessing. When I talk about future events, it's absolutely clear and true, trustworthy, okay? All right, let's just end with verse 26 again. John 14, 26, with the Helper. The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. That's a a very interesting statement and important. As you read the Gospels, have you ever thought, how did the writers of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, how did they remember everything Jesus said? Uh, remember, John wrote his gospel 60 years after Jesus died and rose from the dead. I can't remember what somebody says to me 60 minutes uh, in the past, oftentimes. My wife, poor my poor wife. Don't you remember I just talked to you about that? Honestly, honey, I'm sorry. Uh, you know, it's it just flying through, you know. Uh, but she's got a lot of patience. Praise God for her. But... Um, Uh, How did these guys, like John, 60 years after the fact, he's writing down all these things. How did he remember what Jesus said? Because Jesus promised right here that the Holy Spirit would bring to their remembrance everything Jesus had said and taught, and the Spirit did it. It's supernatural recall. And when you further realize that the Holy Spirit brought the words of Jesus back to them perfectly and infallibly, so that they could write them down in their Gospels without error, well, that's not just remarkable, folks. That's a miracle. Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 3, verse 16, that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Inspiration is the translation of the Greek word theonoustos, which literally means God breathed. God breathed. The Greek word for breathe or breath is pneuma, And it's the same word for spirit, and as Paul is using it, for the spirit of God. The idea is that God breathed life into the scriptures the same way he breathed life into the first man. Genesis 2, 7, then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. He breathed the breath of life into the man's nostrils, and the man became a living person. And even as Adam became a living person when God breathed life into him, So do the Scriptures become living and powerful, right? Hebrews 4, verse 12. When God breathed life into them. Listen, and we'll close. If all Scripture has been given by inspiration of God, which it has been, if all Scripture has been given by inspiration of God, and God is perfect and incapable of error, then it only stands to reason that all of the Scriptures, all 66 books, are absolutely true, error-free, and perfect as God himself is perfect. If they came from God, God never brings forth anything that's faulty, erroneous, right? The psalmist said in Psalm 19, verse 7, the law of the Lord, speaking of the word of God, is perfect. Perfect. The classic evangelical position with regard to the scriptures is described with the phrase verbal plenary inspiration. What does that phrase mean? Verbal inspiration means that every word of scripture is God-given. Every word of scripture is God-given. Um, it is the idea that every single word in the Bible is there because God wanted it there. There are no exceptions. Now, of course, this only applies to the original manuscripts, what, da- what uh, Moses wrote, Isaiah, Uh, the New Testament writers. It doesn't apply to uh, subsequent copies, uh, things that were copied from the original manuscripts or later translations. Uh, We've done other studies that prove that the Bible you have in your lap is absolutely trustworthy. No, it's not infallible in the sense that uh, it's like the original manuscripts that God had Moses and Isaiah and David and others write down. They were perfect but the jews had an incredible copying the scribes incredible group of guys had an incredible system where they copied the scriptures so accurately accurately down through the centuries it's a miracle so god was with them too okay plenary what does that mean big theological words right plenary means that all parts of the bible are divinely inspired and authoritative all parts A pastor years ago said to me that we believe in our denomination that when the Bible speaks in spiritual topics it's infallible. When it speaks on scientific subjects it's prone to error. Well he doesn't believe in the plenary inspiration of the scriptures. That every part of the Bible was inspired by God. This means that God's word doesn't just contain truth folks. As the psalmist declared in Psalm 119, verse 160, the entirety of your word is truth. All of it. And because God's word is perfect in its entirety, because God's word is perfect from start to finish and cover to cover, we might say, well, Matthew 4, verse 4 kicks in. Man does not live by bread alone, but by what? Every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Now, I wanted to end with this this morning because we are living at a time when truth is under attack like never before, at least never in my lifetime. Now, of course, we're talking about truth in general. I mean, the stuff that gets on the evening news, so much of it is just blatant lies. And those we understand. The world belongs to the devil, and he's the father of lies, and so when the world who are children of the devil speak and they lie they speak in their native language because they belong to the father of lies the devil hopefully they'll get saved and and, and become children of god what it really concerns me is in the area of scriptural truth i'll just say this will close um i saw an article the other day was a quote from a uh, from a pastor. Now, this pastor used to be the pastor of Ebenezer Baptist Church, the church that Martin Luther, Doctor. Martin Luther King, pastored. The pastor's name is Raphael Warnock. He left that role and became a senator in Georgia. After Resurrection Sunday, he was quoted making the statement that. Basically, Jesus' resurrection was not a big deal. We can save ourselves if we just treat others kindly and help the poor and so on. Well, you wouldn't be shocked, but you can imagine how many people in the world stood up and applauded that. Now that's tolerant. Now see, that's the kind of Christianity I want, as someone said, who's on MSNBC. Um we, not, we have to know the truth. And we have to be confident that we have in our laps the truth of God. Christians over the centuries have had to die for the truth of God. They were martyred for translating the scriptures into the common language of their you know, country. Because people didn't want them reading the Bible. You read the Bible... You know the truth of God, and as Jesus said, the truth will set you free. The devil doesn't want you free. Oh, you're a Christian, but if he can get you living in defeat and discouragement and depression, he's taking you out of the the race. We have got to cling to God's word, his truth, like never before. So may God give us grace going forward as we continue looking at this very important last message before the cross from Jesus to his disciples. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. It is truth. And Lord, give us grace to embrace it as truth in the sense that we don't doubt anything you have said, but that we live solely according to your word, that, Lord, you would give us grace to be a light in the darkness. Father, we ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.